Welcome to Saga Thing. We're putting the Sagas of the Icelanders on trial. Or we would be if we weren't spending the rest of our lives on Yal Saga. <laughs> I'm John. And I'm Andy. And as John's hinting, we are still on our epic journey through the saga of Njal Thorgerson. This is episode five, for those of you who like numbers. Five episodes. Mm-hmm. Easy to count on one hand or foot, I suppose, if you have the usual number of digits. That's five. The number of arms on a spiny starfish. Some starfish have more than five arms. Of course they do. The sun starfish, I believe, has up to 40 individual limbs. Just covering this with my son recently. Were you really? Well, uh, yeah. you know, let's hope that we finish Njal's saga before we're citing that useless fact to open an episode. <laughs> it's too late for that. I think we just did it. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. Come yeah, on. no, I do. Um, I don't think we'll get to 40 episodes for now, uh, even though it's starting to feel like we'll never finish. Speaking of stars and the number five, it's also the number of points on the pentangle painted on Sir Gawain's shield. For those of you out there who love a bit of Middle English poetry. Are we really doing Middle English poetry now? Uh, yeah. Five is also the number of lines in the bobbin wheel that end each stanza in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. That's right. Yeah, the number five is a very big deal in that text, but uh, you're going to have to ask your local medieval literature professor for more on that subject. You know, the number five is also significant for Saga thing, Andy. Is it? Hmm, how so? <laughs> well, it's our previous record for the number of episodes devoted to a single saga. Right? That's how many parts it took to get through Greta's saga. Wow, that that included the Judgment episode as well, didn't it? It did, yeah. Uh, we were all done with everything in five episodes. And for Njal's saga, we are barely at the halfway point. True, true, but uh, we will finally cross that halfway point in this episode, or at least get up right up to it. So uh, the end is in sight, if only barely. Uh-huh. Uh, or to put it another way, the beginning is still in sight, just barely. Uh, <laughs> there you go. But I do think the decision to go a bit more slowly with Nyal Saga has made sense. Uh, we're getting to know these characters a little better than we normally do. Mm-hmm. And we're getting to go a little bit deeper than we normally would. Only a little deeper, though. I mean, you might not believe this out there in podcast land, but we're still leaving a lot on the table. But that's okay. We we actually want you to read these sagas and discover some things for yourself. There's plenty of great material that we're leaving out. Now, that said, uh, we've gone on the airing on the side of Thorough for this section. <laughs> yes, yes, we have. Uh, but, you know, we're not exactly tearing through the chapters here. Uh, we're not even going to cover 20 chapters this time. But... Uh, this neglecting section of the saga is, is really worth pausing over, I think. Um, it is. I mean, we actually intended to get through a lot more of the saga in this episode. And as usual, we we found too much to talk about. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. That that means that there's more for you all to listen to. And uh, for those of you who have been keeping up, we ended the last episode with the death of a major character. That's right. Uh, pretty much everything we've done on Yal Saga so far has built up to the death of Gunnar. And since we left you with Gunnar's death, we'll be starting this episode with the aftermath of that tragic event. But in case anyone's gone a while without listening to the last episode, we'll do our usual recap for you. Okay, here we go. Last time on Njal's Saga. In the aftermath of the Battle of Ranga River, Gunnar buried his brother Hjort. Meanwhile, Njal arranged a complicated legal settlement to save Gunnar from trouble over the 14 attackers Gunnar and his brothers had killed in the battle. Njal's defense saved Gunnar, but Gunnar's enemies Morth Valgudson and Thorgar Stark Otherson vowed to destroy him. Their chance came when Thorgir befriended Thorgir Otkelsen, the son of another of Gunnar's victims. Drawing on a prophecy that Gunnar's life would be endangered if he killed twice in the same bloodline, Morth and Thorgir goaded Thorgir Otkelsen into an ill-fated attack on Gunnar. After dispatching poor Thorgir Otkelsen, Gunnar was in danger of fulfilling the prophecy. 
Njal tried to save his friend by negotiating a sentence of exile, but Gunnar found himself unwilling to leave Iceland. When his enemies came to attack him in his home, Gunnar put up a brave defense. But after the conniving attackers cut Gunnar's bowstring, he asked his wife Holgoth for help, and she chose to avenge instead the slap that Gunnar once gave her, refusing him in his moment of need. Despite a valiant effort, Gunnar was overwhelmed by numbers and killed. The countryside shook as death, and vengeance seemed sure to follow. Meanwhile, several Icelanders, including Thrain Sigvason and Grimm and Helgi Njalsson, travel abroad to seek new adventures. But the Njalssons are under a prophecy of their own, one that they may not survive. Alright, now, I know we've got a lot to cover in this episode and we need to get started. Uh, we do, but I'm sensing that you're heading for a digression that might threaten that start. Sorry, but, you know, we finished the last episode without really talking about Holgerth refusing to give Gunnar her hair. Hmm? And we didn't really talk about Gunnar's decision to stay home much either. No, I don't know. We did talk about it quite a bit. Uh, mostly about why the attempts oh. to rehabilitate her character seem unnecessary. We can go back into it if you want, but I, I don't want this conversation to turn into an episode all by itself. Oh, just you wait, John. Now, now I'm not looking for a lecture or anything, but I, I just wanted to—I wanted to actually get your thoughts on Holgerth and Gunnar since we spent so much time on them. Okay, but why don't you go first, though? Because you've clearly been thinking about this. Okay, sure. The first thing I would say is, no matter how you feel about Holgerth herself, you, you've got to admit that she's a wonderfully constructed character. And I, I think we've seen throughout the saga that this author enjoys playing the long game with his narrative development as he carefully seeds the plot with details and characters and events that eventually bear fruit in climactic scenes like the one we get with Gunnar's death. Oh, boy. So you're going with the literary approach this time. I, I guess so. That's I didn't intend to, but that's where I'm at. So <laughs> I, I'm not sure what you get out of the scene yourself, but but I just wanted to take a moment before we move on to appreciate the author's accomplishment. Think about it. From the very beginning, the saga author is careful to layer the elements of Holgerth's character as we get to know her, and all of them build toward this moment with Gunnar, even though we don't realize it mm -hmm. at the time. In the very first chapter, when Hrut comments on her thief's eyes, we get our mm -hmm. first hint of trouble. And then both her first two marriages teach us something of her temperament and provide precedence for Gunnar's slap and the inevitable result, regardless of circumstance. From the moment Gunnar slaps her, we should know what's coming, even if we don't necessarily want to see it coming. Sure. And to me, that's part of Holgerth's story that people tend to underemphasize. Mm -hmm. Gunnar knows what happened to her last two husbands. In fact, because of the deaths of those two men, Holgerth's father and her uncle Hrut insist on sitting Gunnar down and trying to talk him out of marrying her. And later in public, Bergthora tasks Holgerth with having killed her previous husband. It's not exactly a secret. If you slap Holgerth, she kills you for it. Which is actually pretty typical saga behavior, if you think about it. Well, there aren't that many slaps in the sagas. Well, I mean, Gudrun gets a slap in the face from her husband Thorvald in Lextella Saga. Mm -hmm. But yeah, other than that, you're, you're probably right. But I, I wasn't talking about slaps. I meant the establishing of a pattern of violence. That's typical. Absolutely. Right. No, I mean, how many times have we seen the difficult person in the sagas who says things like, it's no secret that others often have to go without compensation from me? Or... Uh, a narrator saying, he was a good and well-liked man, but quick to anger. Yeah, so in that respect, Holgerth is a pretty typical figure. Right, now apart from her sex, yeah. Right? We're not used to seeing this propensity for violence from a woman. A beautiful woman, no less. And I think that's important as well. <laughs> oh, I know you got a thing for the ladies. Why? Because the author's working another thread of the story in as well. Mm -hmm. Every time we see Holgerth throughout the first half of the saga, the author almost always notes her beautiful long blonde hair. That's right. Uh, in the, you, you mentioned this in the first episode. Uh, you mentioned that her hair is a common literary motif, and it's a marker of exceptional beauty in the sagas. Right? 
Yeah, but the the hair becomes more than a motif in the hands mm-hmm. of this author. He turns it into a weapon. Her hair could be used to kill Gunnar's enemies, but by refusing to cut her hair for Gunnar, she uses it to seal his fate. And that's pretty awesome in my eyes. And this author's <laughs> earning points all over the place for that final rating when it comes up. Yeah, I'm smelling a high score from you on this one. Well, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. I mean, we, we have talked about sagas we've loved in the past and then uh, scored them rather low. True. So. I think it depends on how tired we are by the time we get to the judgments. <laughs> yeah, right. So maybe by Christmas we'll be on judgments and we'll oh, see. Oh, God, that. no. Uh, I'm holding out hope for finishing Nyal before Halloween at the latest. Oh, you're such an optimist. Okay, now <laughs> it's your turn. What do you make of uh, Hallgrath's decision? Well, I've already sort of said that I think she's a typical saga figure. Right? She asserts her right to respond yeah. violently to a physical attack. And that's almost axiomatically typical for these stories. True, though it's interesting that Njal stands in contrast to her for his non-violent approach. Sure, although as we're going to be seeing, he isn't above retaliating. He just doesn't wield the axe himself. Although, for now, I'm more interested in comparing Holgerth to another person in this saga. Oh, really? Like who? Uh, well, what are Holgerth's attributes that we've been discussing? She's physically attractive, has great hair, mm-hmm. self-willed, she never backs down from a fight, She's got a tendency to retaliate in any conflict with an extreme escalation of violence. There is another person in this saga who's described in almost exactly those terms. Hmm. Are you – wait a minute. Are you talking about Gunnar here? <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> you, you realize that this is sacrilege, right? Yeah. I mean, you're comparing Holgerth to Gunnar. Yes. He's the hero. She's the villain. How dare you, sir? <laughs> Hey, they thought they were a good match. Who am I to argue with love? Okay, so uh, what are your points again? He Good-looking, self-willed, what else? Great hair. All right, yes, that's right. The author does say about Gunnar uh, that he's got great hair, and, mm-hmm. and he never backs down from a fight. All right, that one's pretty self-evident. Uh, and as for rasp- rapid escalations, how many times does Gunnar end a lawsuit by challenging someone to a duel to the death? Uh, we lost count, uh, though Though I, I did always feel like he was justified in his uh, well, Justification his isn't the point, right? Some might say that Holgerth is justified as well. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I submit that Holgerth and Gunnar <laughs> are actually much more similar than we might at first think. Yes, she's a villainous figure. I'm not challenging that. But it's interesting how many behaviors and attributes in the sagas can be evidence of an admirable figure or a hated one. Some of that is tied up in gendered assumptions about character, I think, but not all of it. The sagas are notoriously difficult to pin down to a consistent moral position, and this kind of thing is part of the reason why. Hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you generally, but but maybe not completely. <laughs> I cannot see how you could possibly disagree with me here. Well, because you're overstating the case. Never, sir. Never. Well, it's true, though, but but I'm, I'm not going to argue with you here. I feel confident that we're going to be trying Holgerth in our judgment episode, yeah. and we've got work to do. This The clock's ticking on us. Come on. All right, then why don't you stop your shilly-shallying and get the show on the road? No, I'm not the one shilly-shallying. You're the one (laughs) shilly-shallying. But no, I'm ready when you are. Then hit that button. This time on Saga Thing, we conclude the saga of Gunnar Hamundersen. While our hero might be gone, he is not forgotten. Njal is eager to avenge the death of his dear friend and bring shame upon the names of his killers, or perhaps worse. It appears that Gunnar is also eager to be avenged, as he can often be heard singing at night in his burial mound about confronting fate and shrugging off death. The vengeance will be put in the hands of Skarpe the Njalsson and Hogni Gunnarsson. But do they have the courage to take out Gunnar's killers? Or will their plans for vengeance be thwarted by more of Valgardson's shifty maneuvers? Find out 
in this episode of Njal Saga, chapter 78 to 81. Wait a minute, did I hear that correctly? Uh, what's that? We're only covering chapters 78 to 81. <laughs> well, you caught that, did you? Yeah. Um, Andy, I want you to do a quick math problem for me. Okay. I, I excel at those kind of things. How many chapters are we covering in this episode? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're only covering four chapters, mm-hmm. but I they are great chapters. Four chapters. It's not even a Hrobnika. Yeah. It's not even... A quarter of a Hrovenkill. <laughs> you look, I don't know the numbers of the Hrovenkills and whatnot, but but I do know that this is an appropriate break for our discussion. I mean, this is the end of the first part of Njal Saga and the conclusion of the Gunnar section that we've just spent so much time going over. So I thought it would be a good idea to wrap it up and then maybe reflect on a few things. Uh-huh. Uh, look, I might see the logic of that, but I wonder about where it leaves us. I'm a, I'm a little reluctant to set a precedent where we're only covering four chapters an episode. Look, I'm not arguing that we do that. Well, that is the precedent. Just Nyal Saga time. is a mere 159 chapters long. 159. If we start covering it in three to four chapter chunks per episode, we will run out of alphabet to label these things. Which would be kind of funny, but, uh, you know... <laughs> You love talking about the saga. You don't mind this. Come on. I, I do, but I thought it was supposed to be our summer saga. It's like summer That's sausage. Right, it is. We you s- you got to finish it by the end of summer. <laughs> no, we started it in the summer. No one ever said we had to finish it in the summer. We started Greater Saga last summer, and we didn't finish it until fall. So so there. Your, our previous failures should not be a precedent that we strive to match. <laughs> uh, besides, okay, <laughs> I will give you. successes. Well... I'll give you – you're right that there are some things we can discuss if we use this episode to conclude the first part. I'm not convinced, but I'll play along. All right, John. I'm glad you see things my way now. I do not. Let's get started, (laughs) shall we? Part 18, The Song of Gunnar's Mound. At the outset of this section, there's a kind of hush over the land as the reality of Gunnar's death settles in. Yeah. Uh, now, no one is surprised at the news, but it still hits everyone hard, especially Njal and uh, Gunnar's seven uncles, the Sigfusons. So the next section, chapter 78, opens with the Sigfusons asking Njal about how best to proceed with a legal suit against the killers. And Njal reminds them that there are no legal avenues to pursue. Gunnar, you'll remember, was outlawed after refusing to leave Iceland. In other words, Gizur, Ger... Mord Valgerson, uh, Thorger Starkadison, and the others were within their rights to kill Gunnar. Right. But but then Njal says that they should seek blood vengeance mm-hmm. against the killers and thus whittle down their honor that way. Right. So Njal is actually advocating a violent retaliation here. I mean, isn't he supposed to be an advocate for the law? Didn't he say something like, through the law, our land will rise? Well, he did. Uh, the law is Njal's weapon, but it's useless for avenging Gunnar. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that Njal has to sit back and do nothing. He may be the best legal mind in Iceland, but we never said Njal was a saint. Remember, we already saw Njal approving of a blood feud when his sons went out to avenge the death of their foster father, Thord, by killing Sigmund. That's right. Njal caught his sons slipping out of the house at night with their shields. And, and when he asked Scarpathen what they were up to, Scarpathen said that they were going to catch some salmon. Exactly. But the subtext in that scene makes it clear that Njal knows exactly what they're up to. So Njal isn't above using violence to resolve an issue, especially if the law fails or simply isn't available to him. Uh, That's where a violent revenge can can really come in handy. Well, you know how much I love vengeance motifs in literature, John. I do. 
Uh, it's the subject of nearly everything you did in grad school, isn't it? <laughs> well, not everything, but uh, but most of it. Yeah, I was building toward a dissertation on medieval feud dynamics and the ethics of vengeance for most of the PhD. So, so all that work did kind of pay off. Sure. Yeah, only kind of. Yeah, I ended up mm-hmm. with so much material that I wasn't sure what to do with it all. So there's that. There's a lesson in there somewhere for all you grad students out there. <laughs> anyway, so uh, I was reading about the Gunnar feud in William Ian Miller's Why Is Your Axe Bloody? And he pointed out something that that never occurred to me before, but it makes me look at the evolution of the conflict in a whole new way, especially Morth Volgerson's role in it. Really? What's he say? Well, rather than come straight out with it, I want to just ask you a question that will then lead you there. Is that okay? Okay, go ahead. Well, okay, we'll start here. Is either Njal or Gunnar a Gothi? No. No, they aren't. Uh, no. Njal has a booth the thing, but he's not a chieftain as far as I know. Correct. And for new listeners, a, a Gothi is like a chieftain, only he's not a regional ruler per se. Right. So the office of Gothi is a political office that comes with a great deal of honor and respect, which, of course, is a big deal in Saga Age Iceland. Um, it's mm-hmm. also its title that comes with some authority, but it's based on personal allegiances and shared self-interest. It's, it's a bit right. more complicated than we can go into here, but we covered Gothar in the first episode of the podcast. Yeah, I think it was uh, part 1B. Yeah, that's right. That's right. All right, so Njal is a brilliant lawyer, and Gunnar is a popular hero with a lot of followers, but neither of them is a Gothi. Mm-hmm. Now, typically in the sagas, we have a good sense of who the regional authorities are, because whenever trouble arises, characters typically seek out their Gothi for advice. They look for legal support, or sometimes they even look for brute strength to throw behind their cause through those personal alliances. Oh, okay. I think I see where this is headed. Very sneaky, Dr. Miller. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, so if we review the events of the first half of the saga, to whom do Njal and Gunnar owe allegiance of any kind? They, they don't appear to be thingmen of anyone in particular, do they? No, no. I mean, they function almost entirely as independent agents. Uh, in fact, people of the region seem to seek them out for aid rather than the actual right. authorities. Right? They seem to mm-hmm. be the most powerful and respected men in the district. Exactly. Which is problematic in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Now, now here's the question. Who are the Gothar in this district? Right. Off the top of my head, no idea. I mean, it's not, it, it is almost left out of the saga. It's not relevant to the saga, except it probably is. <laughs> uh, right. We know that, we know, for example, that, uh, Gear and Gizur are Gothar, uh, but they're not close enough geographically to serve as Njal or Gunnar's Gothi, most likely. Right, right. They, they live a bit closer to Thingvellir, and, and they serve a different district, so they're just too far away, though they do stick their noses in here. So do we know who the Gothar of Njal's district are? Well, right, there should be three of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, two of them are unnamed, but we do know the identity of one, and it's kind of an important detail that's really easy to miss until a bit later in the saga. And who is it? Yeah, it's none other than the conniving and villainous Morth Valgardson. That's crazy. I know, right? And 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 once you realize that Gunnar and Yal don't answer to a Gothi, the political side of this saga starts to come into focus. Yeah, I know we ascribed uh, more this behavior toward Gunnar as a, a bad case of envy, and that still holds. And I want to talk mm-hmm. about that some more. But but his envy and the resulting actions make a lot more sense when you consider that Morth's authority and the honor due his official office dwindles progressively as Gunnar and Yal's popularity increases. Right, and that's great. Um, that really adds something. Because mm-hmm. it, so their independence threatens the political dynamics of the region, which is all the more interesting given what's about to happen. Aha, uh-huh, exactly. You see, so you catch on fast, John. Well, it's not my first time reading this up. <laughs> uh, all right. I really like this because it adds another layer to the story for me, uh, especially for what is about to happen in the saga. Morv's plot to kill Gunnar is a major power play. 
Now, because it's successful, the independence that Nyal had worked so hard to gain is now threatened. Right. And if that's the case, Nyal needs to work fast before Morth can take advantage of Gunnar's death. You got it. And, and again, we're, we're trying to look beneath the surface of the character's actions in this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly, Njal will want to avenge his friend. That's understandable, even if it threatens the peace of the region and the stability provided by his beloved law. But if we look at Njal as an independent agent in a culture that's increasingly controlled by the political authorities of the district, we can begin to understand a major theme of the story. I love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's keep that political theme in mind as we move forward and maybe revisit it when it comes up. Uh, but note the... Uh, term move forward ah, yeah yeah no problem we're gonna move we're gonna move forward at such a pace you won't even believe it oh yeah uh so we've got y'all encouraging others to take violent revenge and possibly against his own goalie mm-hmm. so what happens next well how about this gunnar's mother ronveig is said to be on the verge of killing Holgerth. <laughs> well that's understandable yeah you know it turns out ronveig wasn't too happy about Holgerth refusing to give her hair to gunnar but, uh, you know, rather than kill her, Ron Veig settles for chasing her out of the house instead. Now, you might think that Holgerth <laughs> should be done in this saga after her contribution to Gunnar's death, but she's still got a little bit of work to do. Holgerth mm-hmm. and her son Grani settle down at Griota, which is where her son-in-law Thrain Sigfusson lives. And Holgerth mm-hmm. and Gunnar's other son, Hogni, stays with his grandmother because he's the good guy. Right. Well, that's uh, – yeah. And we, as we know, we've got one son taking after each parent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a minor moment in the story, but not at all for the world the saga takes place in. Ronvig's got some fire in her, and that's the first time I can think of that we've actually seen a mother threatening to take direct violent revenge for a son's death. Yes, and she's not done yet. She also refuses to bury Gunnar's halberd with his body, saying instead that it will belong to the man who avenges Gunnar's death. Mm-hmm. Again, this is very interesting. Uh, so this puts a spin on the more usual device of the duty of revenge falling to whoever removes the weapon from the wound of a dead man. This is sort of a combination of that motif with the grave robbing for weapons motif. It's the one where uh, a weapon stolen from a grave is called the gift of the buried man, right? Right. So the halberd will be a gift to whoever kills Gunnar's killers. But there were a lot of them. So how many have to be killed <laughs> before it counts? Well, I mean, there are three major targets, right? There's Thordur Starkovison and Morth Valgridson, who masterminded the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And there's a third guy, uh, Hrold, the son of Gear Gothi. Oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hrold's been going around claiming that he struck the blow that killed Gunnar. I know that's something to boast of, but uh, it, it probably is not a very smart move when Skarpaden and Gunnar's sons are still alive. Yeah. Well, also, it's not entirely clear who struck the blow. Remember, there was a lot of confusion at the moment of Gunnar's death. Uh, a lot of wounds were struck, and no one knows who struck the fatal blow. True, but uh, I'll point out that everyone else is keeping their mouths shut. Well, that's a smart move. Krold's the only one stupid enough to claim the kill and then brag about it to other people. <laughs> right. Uh, okay, so these are the main targets. Uh, but, of course, there's nothing wrong with taking out a few others from among the attackers. Mm-hmm. Uh, initially, however, no one seems to be taking on the task of avenging Gunnar. Not to fear. Uh, Njal is mm-hmm. just biding his time, and he's laying some groundwork. Well, you just said he had to move fast. What's he oh, biding his time for? <laughs> uh, he's just careful planning. Leads to quick results, <laughs> I say. Uh-huh. Now, you'll, re- you'll recall that Njal once told Gunnar that if Gunnar died, the duty of revenge would be taken up by Njal's sons. That's right, yeah, yeah. So one day, while a shepherd and a servant woman are driving some cattle past Gunnar's burial mound, they hear him singing... And sounding quite cheerful. Wait, wait, wait. They hear who? Gunnar? <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, as if anyone was hoping <laughs> sure. for some undead action in the saga, this chapter's for you. 
The two mm-hmm. servants then rush home and tell Ronveig what they heard, and she advises them to rush over and tell Njol all about it. I think it's an interesting uh, statement about the, the, the world the sagas take place in, that when you hear someone singing and carousing inside a burial mound at night, the first thing you think is, well, his friends are going to want to know about this. <laughs> that's right. Well, I, I think that's actually true. If you uh, ran by my uh, grave and you heard me singing, would you not run to uh, my wife and tell her? I feel like I would go home and hide under the covers for a few days. <laughs> I don't really know that I'd be running around telling anybody. Uh, well, that's a, this a, is the a, moment when Yal finally springs into action after all of his time biding. Yes. Well, he, he doesn't take any action himself, but yeah, he, he puts his plan in motion, which is what Yal does. All right. He puts his plan into motion by springing into action. <laughs> uh, first, or, he pulls his son Scarpathen aside and speaks with him for a long time in private. Mm-hmm. Then Scarpathen takes his axe and heads out to Hlutherendi to visit with Ron Vigan Hogni. I wonder why he's bringing his axe. Well, you know, there's a lot of trees to cut, chop down. <laughs> right. Uh, but it's very clear that Ronvig knows and approves of Scarpathen's reasons for visiting and for carrying the axe. Uh, and she invites him to stay for a while, which he does. And pretty quickly, the two of them conspire to get Hogni up near Gunnar's tomb. Yes, and it's a clever idea since Hogni needs to be motivated to avenge his father. Mm-hmm. They want to tell him about the activity around Gunnar's gravesite, but they also know that Hogni is uh, hes difficult to persuade and he's not going to believe a word of it. Right. And in fairness, that's a reasonable response. <laughs> it really is. theres uh, You know, your father's talking to you from the grave. You, right. He wants you to avenge him. I mean, again, we you know, in the world of the sagas, we tend to lose sight of this kind of thing. But that does strain credulity. <laughs> it does. Uh, so uh, one night, Scarpathen and Hogni just happen to be passing by Gunnar's mound, and mm-hmm. they notice that the mound is open. Hmm. Inside, they see Gunnar turned around and looking out at the moon. Ah, what a romantic image that is. Yeah, that's that's one way of putting it. Uh, Gunnar <laughs> is sitting in his grave looking quite happy in the moonlight, and he's reciting a verse so loudly that they can hear every word. The bright bestower of rings, the man bold in deeds, who fought with all his courage, the father of Hogni spoke. The shield-holding ghost would sooner wear his helmet high than falter in the fray, rather die for battle Freya, and die for battle Freya. Mm, good stuff. I love that verse. There's a lot going on there. There is, and, and that's exactly what uh, Scarpe then says to Hogni. <laughs> he says, let me interpret this for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, he suggests that Gunnar is actually urging them to avenge him. Which is a possible interpretation of the poem. Right. Uh, it seems to hinge on Gunnar identifying himself as the father of Hogni, who preferred to live and die by the sword. Right. But the poem does sort of elide what we know of Gunnar's own doubts when he was alive about his private hesitation to kill others. Uh, perhaps, maybe. I, I don't know. I think a hesitation to kill and a desire to meet fate head on are two different things. I like to think of Gunnar as a man who embraced his fate and sought to face the inevitable head on with a brave spirit rather than accept his outlawry and leave the country. And for Gunnar, mm. honor honor always came first. That's why he slapped Holgerth. Well, <laughs> I agree that the poem attends to some of the implied parts of Gunnar's character and maybe not so much the things Gunnar himself chose to emphasize. Hmm. 
Uh, Gunnar did say he worried about his hesitation to kill people, but we never saw him once actually hesitate when the moment for a killing came. Yeah, I don't know about that. He often lets things go that a lesser man might turn into an excuse for a fight. It takes him a while to warm up. Sure, but that's more a big dog behavior. What do you mean, big dog behavior? No, okay, I mean, okay, you know what little dog behavior is, right? Yeah, you're talking about the Napoleon complex and all that stuff. Uh, Mm -hmm. All right, yeah, I see where you're going with this. Big dog, little dog. So the Otkels and the Starkothersons of the world are always looking for an excuse to prove that there's a lot of fight in them. Mm -hmm. And the result is that they're always yapping away at people like little dogs. But Gunnar is a big dog. He doesn't have anything to prove, and he can afford to let the little dogs bark. But when the, when the big dog gets angry, he doesn't bark. He goes for the kill. I think you're maybe straining the metaphor here, but uh, I'm going to go with you. This is it's working. Like a dog on a leash, you're saying? <laughs> okay. Well, let me get back to Corpse Gunnar's poem. It seems to me that what we're hearing here is at least partly what Hogany needs to hear at this moment. So, A, it's narratively convenient that he should hear his father boast of never backing down from a fight. Absolutely. B... Within the narrative, Hogni is hearing the words he needs to move his usual placidity into action. Yes. And C, Hogni is essentially having a dream vision moment. And the conventions of the literary dream vision are, well, that the recipient is often given pretty clear instruction from an authority figure. Yeah, the dream vision thing is a bit of a stretch, but I see where you're coming from, so I'm going to let that pass. Now, I'm not sure I agree, though, that this doesn't represent Gunnar's character. But I, I think, you know, we'll just wait till the end of the episode to address that. Okay. Honestly, John, that's part of why we're covering four chapters in this episode. We've got a lot of things to talk about. Are you still trying to sell that one? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you've already you've already won the day, sir. Be gracious in victory. Let's move on. <laughs> okay. So regardless of how we read the verse and what it tells us about Gunnar, his son Hogni is now prepared to seek revenge for his father with Scarpe then at his side. I think that's an important detail. <laughs> With Scarpe then at mm-hmm. his side. Um, and as they leave the farm to hunt down Gunnar's killers, uh, Hogni takes down his father's halberd from where Grandma Ronveg had hung it on the wall. Now, there's an interesting detail here where it says the halberd rang as Hogni took it down. Mm-hmm. And that startles Ronveg, who demands to know what's going on. This old lady was sitting up in her bed at night. Uh, Hogni tells her that he's bringing it to Gunnar so that he may have it with him in Valhalla and use it in battle. You know, I was struck by that line. Uh, this is going to start another digression. I'm sorry, but it, it might be worthwhile. Yeah, feel free to turn this off or at least fast forward <laughs> if you're only in it for the summary. Oh, you're so nice. All right. So this line struck me because it's a, it's very rare in the family sagas, at least as far as I can recall, to have references to Valhalla or, or even to the Norse pantheon in any kind of detail. They reference fate a lot, but... Not really specific players or details for, from pre-Christian religions. What do you, what do you make of this? I'm not sure. I mean, I tend to think of the pagan element being mostly limited to the settlement period. Okay. I mean, we see the high pillars being guided to shore by the gods or by fate. So there's definitely a faith element there, mm-hmm. or at least a cultural tradition that is sort of faith remembering. Um, and remember the temple of Thorolf Mostrskegi in Erbridge Saga. Okay, yeah, but that one isn't terribly reliable. It's kind of a fiction. No, it's not at all. Uh, but it's a more tangible reference to the pre-Christian religion in Iceland. Okay. Right. And we do see occasional references to Thor sometimes in the sagas, especially as part of, obviously, most of the names. Sure. Uh, and we mustn't forget Hravnkel's devotion to Frey. But the majority of references are limited to the skaldic poetry that appears in the family sagas. 
We see a lot of the Norse pantheon showing up there. That's true. Damn it. I I knew you would come up with a list. So, uh, you know, I hope everyone did fast forward because now I look like an idiot. <laughs> Stop fast forwarding. Just say that really slowly so they hear it at fast forward. Stop fast forwarding. No, I see your point. Um, the reference to Valhalla itself is interesting because outside of skaldic poetry, I don't recall seeing another specific reference to Valhalla. There's got to be one somewhere, and I'm sure somebody's going to – Oh, I know. Yeah, that's what we have listeners for. But uh, there, there's got to be an angle here for the for the text. I, I know we'll mm-hmm. be seeing a pagan temple in our next episode complete with the statue of Thor. So it, it, the author is making an effort here to draw our attention to the Icelanders' paganism, at least in these chapters. Which makes sense. I mean the, the conversion is coming in chapter 100. Mm-hmm. So I'd say the author is, once again, seeding these details in as a way of setting up the introduction to Christianity. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. Now, now since we're on the subject of Gunnar's halberd, uh, why don't we continue digressing and finally address that controversy? Because there's been a lot of comments about oh, that. Oh, right. Um, although I, I feel bad leaving poor Hogni just standing there holding on to the ringing halberd waiting for the action to start up again. Oh, John, don't worry about him. Uh, all actions in this saga occur simultaneously. I mean, a close look at cosmology and physics teaches us that there's no such thing as time, just an endless collection of individual moments called nows, as Julian Barber calls them. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Are you, are you proud of yourself? Are you, are you pleased with that? I, uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, so the <laughs> a little outside reading and influences the podcast. Sure. So. I know. I know. You like to demonstrate the usual library card. <laughs> uh, so this is the last episode of the saga that's going to feature Gunnar's halberd. Uh, so it would make sense to finally address the issues with that term. Mm-hmm. Um, you mind if I share this question that came in? It's from Johnny Theris. Hey there, Johnny. How you doing? Uh, so Johnny wanted to know quite reasonably why we keep calling Gunnar's weapon a halberd. Right. You know, I, I just happen to have his uh, question right here. Would you like me to read it? What are the odds? <laughs> no. So Johnny says, I don't know what word is used in the manuscripts, but as the saga is supposed to take place during the Viking Age, the halberd is a time traveler. There are no finds of that kind of weapon until well into the medieval period. So has Gunnar gotten his hands on something really exotic? Is it a time traveling weapon? Or is it just an author's invention? <laughs> um, well... It's a great question. Yeah. I, I love the idea of a uh, a time-traveling Gunnar with a space halberd. It's my favorite thing. Uh, but the, the upshot is that you're absolutely right, Johnny. Yes, great. So thank you for writing in, Johnny. We'll move on to our next – I had a little bit more about this. Of course you do. You always do. Go ahead. I'm sure this won't take any time at all. Oh, I'm sorry. Do you want to go back into the eternal nows? So neither one of us is particularly well-researched in medieval weaponry, but uh, Johnny's point is correct. Uh, halberds, in the sense that we now use that term, aren't known until about the 14th century. It's a, a Swiss pikeman thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Swiss mercenary armies of that era used pikes, thus pikemen. But they refined their pikes to provide more offensive stopping power by adding heavier, broad-bladed heads on them. Mm-hmm. Now, in some cases, they carried pikes, the big spears, separate halberds with shorter hafts, and then swords and daggers as well. Shifting rapidly from one weapon to another was the mark of a good soldier, and it allowed the Swiss armies to be effective no matter what sort of an enemy they faced. Hmm. And anyone who's been to the Vatican has probably seen the Vatican Swiss Guard. Uh, They still carry halberds for Mm -hmm. ceremonial purposes. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I'm saying that as if I've actually been to the Vatican. It's not... Haven't. Well, you you know, you just know your Swiss guard. Oh, of course, yes. I study. Um, <laughs> uh, but in order to know what we're dealing with in Gunnar's case, we have to consider the weapon's name in Old Norse. 
which is Atger, right? Yes. Uh, and as I said in my conversation with Johnny, I'd always assumed halberd to be a translator's way of rendering the idea of the Atger for a modern audience. It's likely that the author is thinking of some distant relative of what we'd recognize as a halberd, possibly a, a bearded axe or a glaive or something along those lines. Yes, and he clearly said to glaive, and we all know that to glaive means to cleave a head with a... Uh, uh-huh. Never of course, uh, there's also the possibility that the author doesn't think of the 14th century as being significantly different from the long axes of a couple of centuries earlier. And so he uses a term mm-hmm. that feels more historically rooted in describing a modern piece of fighting technology for, for his audience. Right. Uh, but there's another factor, which is that the precision of terms like bearded axe or halberd is mostly a post-medieval phenomenon. True, and there are a lot of similar weapons that now that we now designate with different names. There's the pole cleaver, the Volge, the poleaxe, the bill, the fauchard, and so yes, on. Yes, I, yes, you've got your you've got your page open to all the different names. <laughs> <laughs> are you impressed? I did mm-hmm. my research. Uh, yeah, they're all variations of on a theme of big chopping blade on long stick. Uh-huh. And and it's not clear that they, they would have been precisely differentiated among non-specialists in the medieval period, especially, uh, you know, if this is written by a cleric or someone who has never really picked up a, a blade like this. Right, right. And several of those weapons do also have a spear point on the crown, like Gunnar's halberd seems to have, or at least a reverse spike on the butt of the axe. The more pointy bits, the better, I always say. I have not heard you say that. Sometimes it helps to bring a knife to an axe fight, I always say. You, you always say a lot of things. Uh, I can see that being particularly useful if the knife is on the end of the axe. That's right. So so anyway, we know that there's a spike on the top of Gunnar's weapon because he does use it to gouge people. He lifts them up and he dashes them to the ground or throws them into a river. So to that right, extent... We, we, we called that the hitherendi slam or something, didn't we? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so to, anyway, to that extent, it, it does share qualities with a halberd. Uh, so we should say that a lot of these weapons were, I, I would call them idiosyncratic. Mm-hmm. Um, made by smiths for a single group and occasionally even for a single warrior, right? Somebody just sort of welds pieces together. That's true, although it makes it a little bit less of a romantic weapon, I think, mm-hmm. if you're just saying he's throwing stuff together. So I'm going to reject that. But among artisans, word of new developments would pass through rumor mills quickly. And if one weapon maker stumbled onto an effective innovation in shaping a weapon head, the word would soon spread and suddenly then everyone has 10-foot poleaxes. Right. So the halberd as we think of it almost certainly evolved from other long-handled axes, right? rather, being, rather than being a spontaneous creation of the 14th century. Yeah, and it's still confusing to have the modern term used in the translation, though. Agreed. But I don't want to come down too hard on the translator's task here. The evidence of the saga makes it very likely that Gunnar is fighting with a long-handled axe of some description. Mm-hmm. Halberd is a recognizable anachronism, in other words, and it sort of helps to add authenticity to the text, oddly enough. Interesting. Yeah, that's an appropriately convoluted way to conclude the point, I guess. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Thanks again for writing in, Johnny. I hope that was some help. Um, We've got to get back to Hogni, who's currently experiencing all the moments of his life simultaneously as we talk. Right. Uh, (laughs) But we're interested in that one moment, that one now, when he stands with his father's ringing halberd. Or his atger. And, yes, and resolves to put it to good use. Which is exactly what his grandmother, Ronveig, says. Uh, remember, we mm-hmm. left Hogni at that one moment when he said that he was taking the axe down to return it to his father so that he might use it in Valhalla. 
It rang out loudly, prompting Ronveig to jump up in a rage and ask who dared to touch Gunnar's halberd. Or Otger. Right. And Ronvig then replies in her typical fiery manner, First you must carry it yourself and avenge your father, because the halberd is announcing death for one man or more. What an awesome grandmother she is. <laughs> Part 19. Avenging Gunnar. So Scarpathen is eager to get the killing started because, well, he's worried that rumor might spread about him hanging out with Hogni. So they're in a bit of a rush to act. Uh, they've got three different places to hit to get their three main targets, and he wants to get to them all as quickly as possible. Right. Now, stop one is Odi. It's a farm where Hrold Gerson is staying with his friend Tjorvi, who was also involved in the conspiracy. Right. Now, Scarpathen and Hogni travel by night, arriving at Odi before dawn. And the author notes that two ravens fly with them the entire way. Yeah, most of our listeners are going to know that uh, ravens are associated with Odin, so this is probably a good omen for the attackers. They're mm -hmm. also associated with death and carrion, so that's a bad sign for somebody. Oh, I, I think we know who it's a bad sign oh, for. Oh, yes. Scarpathen stampedes Chorvi's sheep into the farmhouse lane. Hang on, hang on. And what? Stampedes? Yeah. Sheep? Can sheep really stampede, John? Sure, why not? It's there's not. there's likely to stampede as the next herd herd mammal. I, I mean, I guess I you know if they were you know wild sheep, rams and such <laughs> maybe, but uh, this sounds it sounds wrong to me. Uh, could we just say that they drove the sheep up to the farmhouse? Why, why are they suddenly stampeding? <laughs> They're just wandering in a place. They Dramatic shouldn't be. effect. Ah, okay, that's fair. Well, Chorvi and Hrold clearly don't want them wandering around like that. Stampeding or stampeding, so they come out to drive the sheep back into the fields where they belong. That's when Scarpe then jumps out from his hiding spot and says, You don't have to look any further. It's just what you think. And then he kills Tjorvi, which is great. <laughs> and Hogni uh, kills off Hrold with his father's trusty halberd. Right, without any witticism or anything. He just kind of does it. Right. But uh, yeah, they're not finished. This mission's just getting started. They quickly rush off to Threehirning, uh, where Starkoth and his son Thorgir live. Scarpe then jumps mm -hmm. on the roof and then he starts tearing out the grass like a madman. Uh, and everyone inside, according to the author, thought this was just sheep on the roof again. Again. <laughs> See, these are the kind of details that really bring this saga to life for me. Yeah. It's just an excellent reminder of the day-to-day -day existence of these people. I, I love learning that one of the daily annoyances of the medieval Icelander was chasing the sheep off the roof of your turf home. I know. And, and, and that's exactly what Scarpathen is counting on. Starkoth comes rushing out with his son, only to meet a quick death. Scarpe then takes out Starkoth, mm -hmm. and Hogni thoroughly ruins Thorgir's evening. Right. But they're not done. Nope. Right now, they, they are moving at this pace because, again, Scarpe is trying to stay ahead of rumor. Mm-hmm. Right? If people start being on their guard, two men alone are going to have a much harder time attacking and killing them. That's right. So now they're rushing off to the farmhouse at Hof to take on Morth, who is the mastermind behind the plot to kill Gunnar. See, now this is the part that bugs me a little, especially given what you just said. Why is that? Because if you look at a map of the places that they go, this whole trip doesn't make sense. They start out at Audi, mm -hmm. which is fine. Then they travel east mm -hmm. to Threehirning, which is also fine. I don't have a problem. I'm guessing mm -hmm. in, in looking at maps and kind of doing horrible measurements, it's about like 10 to 15 miles in a straight shot from the farmstead at Audi to Threehirning. Okay. And then they go to Hof, which is where exactly? Well, see, that's the thing. It's back west, about five to ten miles along the Uttaranga River. 
So they're backtracking over territory that they've actually already crossed in order to get the three hung ring. Mm-hmm. So why not stop in and kill Morth on the way to Thorgir and Starkath? Why go there and then come back? Um, well, that is a bit of a problem. But one, it wouldn't work for purposes of the narrative. Uh-huh. Um, yes. Remember, they stop at Hoff to kill Morth, but they end up making a deal with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, if I can be the grandfather from Princess Bride for a moment. Nobody kills him. He lives. <laughs> Uh, it wouldn't make sense to have them settle things with Morth and then run east to kill Thorgir and Starkoth after that, right? At that point, the cat's out of the bag. Again, they're trying to stay ahead of Rumor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, if they're trying to stay ahead of Rumor, then then why run right past Morth's house, go to mm-hmm. Thorgir and Starkath, and then come back? Chances are very good that Morth might have found out by then. Well, it was the middle of the night. They, you know, they wouldn't want to wake him up. <laughs> well, you know, it's moments like this that make me start to question the historical veracity of the saga, John. Ah, so it's it's this. It's the geographical stuff, not the singing corpses. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I've got to pick my battles. Um, yeah. Now, now, what's with this settlement? Why why settle things with Morth, if I can be the uh, the Fred Savage to your uh, Peter Falk? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why settle things with Morth? He's the most villainous of all the conspirators against Gunnar. He's responsible for all of this. Uh, because he asked politely? <laughs> Come on now. No, seriously, he does. Uh, they meet him in a field on their way to Hoff, and he immediately offers full reconciliation. Oh, the coward. Giving Hogni self-judgment. And Hogni reluctantly takes the deal. You know, it's a shame because if anyone deserves to be run through, it's Morth. He really does. Um, but that's not how it's going to go this time. Uh, everything is uh, resolved in court, uh, which is kind of interesting in itself. I mean, the the suit against Scarpathen and Hogni, and there is one for the deaths of Starkov and Thorgir... Uh, it's brought by Morth, but he then accepts the offer to balance all those deaths that they managed to pull off against the death of Gunnar. Yeah, and that's a big deal, actually. And, and it's all mm-hmm. orchestrated by Njal. I, I really love this, because Njal has managed to get the killing of Gunnar to amount to something significant in court, despite the fact that Gunnar was a full outlaw when he was killed. Hey, it's pretty impressive, but that's who Njal is, right? That's, yeah. He's the greatest lawyer. Gunnar's death shouldn't count for anything. Right? That's the law. But Njal's essentially arranged for Morth to pay for the deaths of everyone involved in the attack on Gunnar and the resulting vengeance. Mm-hmm. Now, because of this, Morth's reputation once again takes a hit. It's amazing they can go any lower. <laughs> right. And Njal and Gunnar, by proxy, come out on top once again. It's a brilliant move by Njal, who's worth his weight in gold as a legal advisor. Probably more than his weight, because I don't think he's that big. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there's also the case concerning the deaths of Hrold and Tjordvi to consider, but they're easily mm-hmm. resolved in court as well. This is a separate case that's brought by Hrold's father, Ger the Gothi. Right. Now, Ger was brought into the region as a heavy hitter with a lot of political influence, essentially to help Morth make a name for himself. And this is another place where Miller points out that uh, Morth is the Gothi of Njal and Gunnar's district, and that helps us to make sense of the action. Yes. Uh, Ger the Gothi is from Hlid, uh, but both he and Gizer were Morth's allies against Gunnar and Njal. They represent established authorities, something Morth no doubt hoped he mm-hmm. would become. This whole story of Gunnar's rise and fall is 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 really a game for them, I think, since they, they stood to expand their influence from their own districts into other territories mm-hmm. if everything worked out. 
Uh, now, John, you and I spent a lot of time playing around with the Sturlunga saga and, and other contemporary sagas back in grad school. Mm-hmm. And the main theme of all of those sagas was the consolidation of power by Big Gothar, who expanded their influence and territory by participating in feuds outside their districts, kind of like Garen Geezer are doing here. Right. And sometimes they're actually causing these problems so that they can benefit from them. Right? We're going to see other uh, Gothar doing the same thing later in this saga. Right. They're always on the lookout for their own best chance to benefit from any conflict. Absolutely. So while Gare and Geezer might seem like minor characters who have no real significance to the saga, it's actually quite the opposite. They're a very mm-hmm. big deal because of what they represent. Njal and Gunnar are pushing mm-hmm. against that kind of motivation, uh, which is part of why we view them as heroes in the saga, I think. Geezer fled the region after Gunnar's death, fearing reprisal, but Gare was still hanging around, caught up in the game that he thought he'd win. Well, and that's part of why the author notes that everyone's so interested in the outcome when Gare the Gothi brings his case against Hogning and Skarpathen for the death of his son Hrold and his friend Tjorvi. Mm-hmm. There's a lot at stake there, uh, but it turns into another win for Njal. Uh, it's not clear that Njal manages the case, although it would make sense if he did. But part of the settlement requires Gare to leave the district and return home to Cleve permanently. In other words, the threat of Gare and Geezer encroaching on the region is now gone completely. Right. Now, and with Morth humiliated once again, and Geezer and Gare off the scene, Njal has in fact reinforced his position in the region. And he secured his independence. At least for now. Part 20. Loose Ends. Now, we're almost done with the Gunnar section of the saga, though there are some important loose ends to tie off before we finish. Right. Thus the clever name of the section. Right. Uh, And the saga author doesn't waste a whole lot of time wrapping things up. Immediately after that settlement with Gare the Gothi is concluded, we're told that Hogni gets married and lives happily ever after. And in typical saga fashion, we're told of his important descendants. Mm -hmm. In this case, he has a son named Ari who sailed to Shetland, and a very brave man named Einar the Shetlander is descended from him. Now, uh, I have no idea who Einar is, or if he's at all significant, because I didn't take the time to look him up. But, uh, you know, find out for yourself. He's important to the Shetlanders. Uh, Now, the author moves from Hogni, who's more or less out of the saga. He actually does crop up a couple more times. Even though the saga hmm. says he's done here, he does sort of get mentioned a few more times as being. Is that right? I, yeah, I, I always, I always take the author seriously when he says he's out of the saga. Right. That we're told that Hogni's out of the saga, but he's not. He actually shows up twice more, both times just a, as a, as another person in the crowd supporting Nell. Gotcha. But so one of the one of the subtext things that goes on in this saga is that Gunnar's two sons end up on opposite sides of this feud. Uh huh. Yeah, is, which is really kind of a cool thing to set up. Right. Right. All right. So uh, what, what's next? So now we're done with Hogni and we move on to Gunnar's brother, Kolskeg. Ah, that's right. Yeah. In case you don't remember from last time, both Gunnar and his brother Kolskeg were on their way out of Iceland uh, when Gunnar caught that glimpse of home and refused to leave, which sealed his fate. Uh, his brother Kolskeg said at the time that Gunnar was behaving shamefully and that he should honor the settlement that forced him into exile. Right. And Kolskeg also promised that if Gunnar broke the settlement and stayed home, then he, Kolske, would never return to Iceland again. And those words prove true. According to the saga, Kolske traveled to Norway and then to Denmark, where he enters the service of King Sven Forkbeard. Yeah, and things went pretty well for Kolske until one night 
he has a dream. Mm. And in this dream, he's visited by a man who gleamed with light. And you said the dream visions weren't important in this saga. Oh, I didn't say that. I just said that he wasn't having a dream vision, the one you were talking about. I don't even remember it now. Uh, But anyway, the gleaming man wakes Kolskegi up and says, Rise and come with me. What do you want with me? I shall find you a wife, and you shall become my knight. Now, what do you suppose that was all about? Well, that's what Kolskegi wanted to know. Uh, So he goes off and finds someone to interpret the dream. And what does he say? Well, you may not be shocked to hear this, but the gleaming man has something to do with Christianity. Uh, You don't say. You know, I never would have guessed. Well, that's what the interpreter thinks anyway. Uh, And it turns out to be fairly accurate. Kolskegi gets baptized in Denmark shortly after that. But he eventually becomes restless in Denmark. So he makes his way east to Russia and then south to Constantinople. Ah, and you know what that means. If an Icelandic warrior ever finds himself in Constantinople, why, there's only one thing to do. That's right. He finds a wife. No! He joins the Varangian Guard, becomes a great hero. Come on, you've read sagas. Well, that too. He does both, actually. Uh, If you'll remember, that's exactly what happened to Greta's brother. That's Uh, true, yes. He does both, and thus fulfills the prophecy of the gleaming man. Oh, how lovely. It is. And now he's out of the saga. Which means... Which means we have arrived at the end of the Gunnar section of Njal saga, and we're about to start the saga of Burnt Njal for real. Oh, yes. I like that tease. You're right. We're going to start the next episode with a brief interlude in Norway and Scotland as a bunch of important new characters are introduced. And the actions of those characters will help set the stage for the story of Burnt Njal. It's a really unfortunate nickname. (laughs) It is, but it's well earned. Well, it is. It's well done. Uh, But it's still sad. (laughs) (laughs) it's <laughs> a good pun i like it now uh now do you want to end the episode here john or or do you want to have a little chat with me uh, like continue recording a chat about what exactly well yeah as willy wonka says come with me and you'll be in a world of pure literary analysis <laughs> uh-huh <laughs> okay I'm with you. Here we are. What's the story, Morning Glory? <laughs> what is it? Champagne Supernova? Huh? Uh, Wonderwall, maybe? I'm not following. I'm not surprised you're not. Listen, uh, we don't all live on a little oasis of pure metal, John. Oh, this is a musical reference. Okay. It, it, it is, but uh, <laughs> never mind, since it went over your head. Uh, I guess that the 90s passed you by, did they? They didn't pass me by. I just chose to listen to real music at the time. Oh, did you now? Yes. So, uh, do you care to give an example of real music that you listened to from the 90s? Uh, Like Striper? Sure. (laughs) How about uh, Skyclad, uh, The Saw Doctors, The Indigo Girls? Uh, I was all over the map. No Spin Doctors for you? I'm aware of them. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's go on. So, what are we doing here? You you said you had something to talk about, and now all you're talking about is god-awful failed British pop bands. Pop bands? I'm going to go with pop rock at the at the very, very least. There. Failed was uh, but, the important uh, term. What's that? Failed was the important term. Oh, they're hardly a failed band. They're quite successful, I'll have you know. Well, it all depends on your perspective, Andy. All depends on perspective. Well, I guess that's a fair point. Okay, no, so uh, really, on. moving on. Remember how I said I've been reading uh, William Ian Miller's uh, reading of Njal Saga? Yes, that's uh, Why Is Your Axe Bloody? I'm actually reading it right now. 
Yeah, exactly. That's the one. So uh, it goes great with what we're doing, I'm finding. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's it's not unlike a book version of what we do here on Saga Thing, only it's you know a bit more serious than what we do. Is it possible to be a bit more serious than us? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. All right, so that uh, yeah, sounds so, interesting. Go on. So as he wraps up the Gunnar section of the saga, he pauses to evaluate Gunnar's character. And I think he makes some great points here that we should review a little bit. Really? What does he say? Well, I mean, you have the book, so I assume you know. But, uh, you know, I've been I'm, reading... I'm book. trying to help you out here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been reading this book at, at the pace that we're going through Njal's saga. I don't know where you're at. Ah, So very, very slowly then. Yeah, it's a little slow. I don't mind that, though. I, I read embarrassingly slow anyway. It's kind of was a hindrance to me in graduate school. So uh, he's been hinting ever since Gunnar arrived on the scene that he's not wholly comfortable with Gunnar's role as the hero of the saga. Hmm, is that so? Well, we hinted at this a bit earlier, didn't we? Uh, remember, uh, I was comparing Gunnar to Holgrith at the start of this episode. That's true, but you were you were trying to draw a distinction between the way their gender informed our reading of their actions, which which is a valid point, by the way, but it's not the same thing. Not not entirely. I mean, that's absolutely one of the factors, but not the only one. My point is that it's actually these these actions are ambiguous, and so the morality of the sagas can often feel ambiguous. Uh, mm, okay. But if I can anticipate where Miller is going with his reading of Gunnar. It's maybe not going to be a whole lot different than what we've already said. So but go ahead. All right. So so his chapter on this section closes with a critical evaluation of Gunnar's behavior. And the first thing that he notes is that Gunnar, like many saga figures recently returning from a successful trip abroad, fails to account for the potential target he puts on his back by flaunting his wealth and success in front of everyone else. Mm-hmm. Well, we did talk about this briefly at the time, um, but I, I would guess that we're talking about Njal's warning that Gunnar should be careful at the all thing. Because of the envy he'll inspire in others. That's exactly right. And despite his claims to the contrary, Gunnar, does, I think he does want to go mm-hmm. and he ignores Njal's advice. He dresses up really fancy, dressed to the nines, and that does elicit the envy of others. Right. Now he, I think he does actually want to go. Remember, he, when his brother brings it up, he says, well, it's always good to meet good people. That's right, uh, right. And well, you know, when he, show, when he shows up all gussied up, it catches the eye of Holgerth. Which admittedly is basically a death sentence right there. <laughs> right, yeah. So be careful how you dress, right? Uh, you know, Miller uh-huh. also points out, and I like this part, that Gunnar has a bad habit of overdressing. Um, <laughs> he, he gives a couple examples. <laughs> Gunnar sews grain in a fine woven cloak, and he shows up to the horse fight in a, a, a very unnecessarily bright red tunic and a silver belt, which is not really appropriate for the kind of work that he's going to be doing there. Both of these are pretty extravagant for the task that he's doing. And we've seen in other sagas how a person's clothes can reveal something of their character in the eyes of others. Right. So what we're learning here is that Gunnar is a bit of a dandy. Uh, in Vonsdahl's saga, we made a big deal out of something similar. Remember, uh, Berg the Bold and his fine cloak dragging in the mud. Right? Mm-hmm. Everyone was sort of upset or bemused, at least, when he tore the end off and tossed it on the ground. It was seen as a kind of uh, an ostentatious slap in the face to the Ingemundersons. Right, as if he was flaunting his wealth in front of them. Mm-hmm. Um, he specifically did that for them uh, right. as a performance. Now, we also saw a similar kind of thing with Avon Bjarnason in Hrafenkel's saga way back when we started this podcast. And one of the more mm-hmm. important details of his part of the story was how he rode along Hrafenkel's property line in fine multicolored clothes with glittering shields after he came home from uh, from Norway. Right. Okay, so Gunnar wears fancy clothes at inappropriate times. Doesn't really make him a villain. 
No, it doesn't. And that's not the argument at all. Gunnar isn't a villain. But but recognizing his pride is a first step in building a case against Gunnar's widely perceived perfection. I think you're laying it on a little bit thick here. I don't know who's claiming that Gunnar is perfect. <laughs> Just come with me here, will you, please? Go on. You lead, I follow. Okay, so now one of the things that makes us like Gunnar is that he seems to have a conscience. We like him because he claims to not enjoy killing as much as the next man. But as you said before, we don't have a lot of evidence of him hesitating to kill when the time comes. Right. Now, that said, I think there's a distinction to be made between hesitating to kill and enjoying the kill. Gunnar can act quickly, Mm -hmm. but still not enjoy himself, which is the real problem. But Gunnar's problem is is that he's he's just too damn good at everything. He's not (laughs) only the best looking guy, he wins at everything he does all the time. And he always seems to be in the right. Ah, what's not to love? Well, see, that's a great question, John. You mentioned at the start of this section that it all depends on perspective when you were crapping on Oasis, a band that I, I deeply love. At least loved for a while. I didn't I didn't even know that was the band I was crapping. <laughs> I exactly. So <laughs> now Miller suggests that we look at the situation from another perspective as well, because Gunnar always wins. He draws a lot of attention to himself, and with each victory or boastful display, he draws the ire and envy of other men in the district that that also want to make a reputation for themselves. Hmm. Interesting. We, we didn't talk about it much at the time, but this is exactly the problem that guys like Finboogie run into. Right. Anytime, anytime we get an extraordinary individual in the sagas, they're almost always challenged by men who want to make a name for themselves by defeating them. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it reminds me of uh, uh, Gene Wilder's character, the Waco Kid from Blazing Saddles. Right? Oh, he, he can't okay. walk yeah. down a street uh, without somebody trying to quick draw him because he's got this reputation for being the fastest man in the West. That's absolutely a good comparison. Uh, now, these men are willing to do almost anything in pursuit of the honor and fame that comes to defeating the best. If you remember, the Waco kid eventually got shot in the butt by a kid. There you go. So there's, there's no percentage in being the guy everybody wants to get. Hey, and I'll be the first to say that uh, if you want to understand the uh, Icelandic sagas, studying the uh, American West is, a, is yep. a pretty good idea. Yep. So. Anyway, Gunnar is warned time and again throughout the saga to be careful with how he handles himself by more than just Njal. And as Miller points out, Gunnar goes from having no equal in the south of Iceland to being the most outstanding person in the land in just four chapters. It's a very quick rise to fame that he has. <laughs> yes, four chapters. Apparently the length of an entire episode of Saga Thing. <laughs> I'll be quiet. So Miller makes a big deal out of the envy Gunnar's success inspires in those around him. Um, and you know how much I love talk about emotions in literature, John. Yes, you are the emotions and vengeance kid. I've never been called that, but uh, uh, you can see, you, you, you know, those two subjects are deeply related. And the Gunnar section of Njalsaga is an excellent place to look at the intersection of those two interests, emotions and vengeance. When we consider the emotions of those involved in the killing of Gunnar, we can begin to understand their motives much better. Um, and if we look carefully at the source of their emotional responses to Gunnar's successes, we can begin to understand their perspective as well. That's right. Um, one of the things that... that you and I both love about the sagas, and this one in particular, is how well they capture and explore human nature. Absolutely. Uh, Gunnar is a brilliantly constructed character. He's not a cardboard cutout of the perfect man. He's nearly right. perfect, but he doesn't know how to handle his own quality, right? his own near perfection. Mm-hmm. He believes that he's in the right and that's all that matters, but it isn't. 
Exactly, because there's a social game that he has to play as well. It's not wrong that he wins all the time or that he's really good looking. Anyone who, mm-hmm. who's watched Survivor knows this kind of thing, uh, which might date me a little bit. <laughs> it's how bit. it's how it, it's how he handles this social game and how he anticipates everyone else's response to his success. Mm-hmm. Gunnar's just not good at that part. Well, he's not good at diffusing it, right? I mean, this the sort of the the dressing up and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, Meanwhile, you've got all these young men in the region, those those little dogs we were talking about earlier, who are desperate to make a name for themselves, to build a reputation that would bring honor to their families and lead to future success. Right? The man who takes down Gunnar is going to be a famous man. Right. But with Gunnar around sucking up all the glory all the time, it becomes impossible to gain a name for yourself without going after Gunnar. Exactly. Thus, all that envy and hatred toward Gunnar, even though he's otherwise an unimpeachable character. Mm-hmm. So so we've got a well-developed social game going on here as well as a complex political game. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's all pretty brilliant. And, and if we look carefully at the portrayal of Gunnar throughout the saga, at least according to Miller anyway, what we find is, as he says, a rather high-headed bully that's quite different from the person both Gunnar and the author claim he is. Bully? Yeah, that's what he says. Well, that's, that's, that's a quote. strong. That's a direct quote, John. Yeah, no, that's yeah. strong. I can, I can see the point, but that's strong. Uh, Gunnar, yeah. he's not afraid to throw his weight around. But as I said, he also puts up with a lot of nonsense that a lesser man would would respond to. He does. Uh, He does tolerate a lot of silliness from other people. But he does, when the time comes, he's not afraid to throw his weight around. It's something that we saw Gizer and Gare call him out on the thing. Um, When he says, I have another proposal to make, and Gare's response is, if we refuse, you're just going to challenge us to a duel like you always do? Right, right. So there you go. And we've left out other instances where he kind of does that kind of stuff. But uh, mm-hmm. let's conclude with this. Here, I got another question for you. What do we make of Njal's behavior in the saga so far? Uh, see, I wonder if that was where you were heading. Uh, I Okay, I'll play along. Uh, I think Njal is generally perceived as a brilliant mind who is almost always in the legal right. But if we follow the path you're leading us down, then our sense of him is going to get complicated, right? Absolutely it is. Now, I don't want to dwell on this too long, but I do want our listeners to think about it for a bit. If you've read this saga or you're listening along and kind of figuring out the things as, as we report them, um, what, what is it that determines the moral status of a character in saga literature? I mean, why do we tend to think of people like Njal as morally upright and, and good men? Frankly, I'm not entirely sure that I do. And that's something that we're going to get into more in the next section of the saga. Uh, mm-hmm. But... People who do think of him as morally upright, it's because of the way he's presented to us. Saga authors, they're able to use language to establish the character in a way sort of determining the way we're meant to think about him. Right. So let's look at Njal, for example. Um, hang on, let me find a good passage. Uh, I'm going to skip the genealogy stuff and go right into the characterization. Uh, so it says, He was so well-versed in the law that he had no equal. And he was wise and prophetic, sound of advice and well-intentioned, and whatever course he counseled turned out well. He was modest and noble-spirited, able to see far into the future and remember far into the past, and he solved the problems of whoever turned to him. See, there you go. I mean, how could you not love this guy from the very beginning? From the moment we meet him, we're well-disposed towards him because the author tells us that we should be. Mm -hmm. Now compare that to the introduction of Morth. Here's his introduction. I pulled it up while you were fiddling around there. Uh, They had a son named Morth, and he will be in this saga for a long time. And when he was fully grown, 
He was bad to his kinsmen, and to Gunnar <laughs> worst of all. He was cunning by nature and malicious in counsel. I mean, well, he's a real Mordred of the, the Arthurian Chronicles. Well, I mean, right? there's no mistaking that he's the bad guy. Uh, but yeah. let me ask you this. Okay, go ahead. If the saga bears out through the actions of the characters that the men introduced as heroic or as as positive are in fact heroic, that the men introduced as villains are in fact villains, then what's the problem? See, now we're into it because this is just like a really good class discussion. Now, I like this. Here we go. Uh, I'm sorry, everyone. I, I didn't know he was going to be doing this. Uh, don't worry about that. Now, the first thing I would say is that we should be careful about assuming what the author's doing at any given time. The sagas are great at ambiguity when they want to be. Okay, but so are you suggesting that Nial is not a good guy? No, 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 not at all. I'm suggesting that his actions aren't always for the good of others, despite Mm -hmm. what the saga author tells us. We started this episode talking about how Njal was willing to go outside the law to avenge Gunnar, despite knowing that Gunnar's killing was a legal action. And we know that Njal is more than willing to manipulate the law in order to achieve a favorable outcome for himself or those he supports. Right. And as I said, when we get into the next section, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the ambiguities in Njal's character. But mm-hmm. those are all good reasons for why you would want a guy like him on your side. Well, I, I agree with that 100%. But but one can also see from another perspective that Njal isn't necessarily so pure and good. Mm-hmm. Like any other person, like any other human being, he's, he's going to act on self-interest more often than not. And in a saga that begins with him as a nearly perfect figure, it's fascinating to see his character develop and respond to the crises that arise in ways that aren't necessarily always for the common good. Well, and of course, that depends on how we define the common good. It does. It does. And, and that brings us back to perspective. From Njal's perspective, he is working for the common good. From Garen Geezer's perspective, and even from Moore's, he's not. And that's what makes these narratives so interesting. There's a lot to learn here about human society, about human nature, regardless of the fact that this story is centuries old. No, I couldn't agree with that more. Um, aside from the sagas being just a ton of fun to read, I think we both want to encourage people to pick them up because they do have a lot to teach us. They do have a lot of complexity. But I don't Mm -hmm. want to get all philosophical here right now. We should probably wrap this thing up. Yes, we should. Although I do think it'll be interesting to see how people respond to Nial as we move through the rest of the saga. Uh, His his days are numbered, but he's going to make interesting use of them. Uh, Yes. Let's see how he handles himself as the pressure builds and what efforts he makes towards that common good. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. And and I hope everyone out there will forgive me for expanding what should probably have been a really, really short episode into what turned out to be a full-length episode. Oh, I'm sure there there's a slim minority that are overjoyed that you did and the rest are already asleep. <laughs> well, either way. Or they or they took my my invitation to fast forward seriously about half an hour ago and they never stopped. Yeah, so this is only a 15-minute episode right. for them. <laughs> well, either way, uh, feel free to get in touch with us on our Facebook page or Twitter to share your thoughts on this episode or your thoughts on y'all. Uh, or you can carve your message in runes on a stick, toss it into the ocean, and hope it finds its way to the shores of Plymouth, Massachusetts. Or perhaps winds its way into Lake Erie for when Andy's at the next Cleveland Indians game. Yeah, I, you know, I doubt that I'll be down by the lake for that, but it's an interesting well, I don't think option. you'll have to worry about the runestick making it through the Great Lakes. We look at all the trouble the Draken had. <laughs> Excellent point. If the runestick idea doesn't work for you and you don't have Twitter or Facebook, then I have this new century to tell you about. But you can use our email address, 
sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. That should work just yes. as well. All right. And finally, if you enjoy this podcast and the effort that we put in, which involves many, many hours, <laughs> uh, please just take a moment. I'm talking like five minutes out of your day. Log into iTunes and rate our podcast and leave a short review. I know we say this from time to time and, and you know, may be a little bit annoying to you, but those reviews, those ratings, they help us a great deal to raise the profile of Saga Thing. Yeah, it's much easier than actually making the episodes better. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, we... <laughs> We really appreciate the effort you guys put into the reviews. They do make a difference. And with that, I think we're done with these four chapters, these lengthy chapters. Um, join us next time when we'll head off to Norway with Thrain Sigfusson and the Njalsons for some crazy adventures. Ah, yes. I can't wait to introduce everyone to Killer, Hrop, and uh, Kari. They're a lot of fun. Ah, yes. Yes, they are. Um, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I got lost. <laughs> That's a hell of a good point, but I don't know about that. <laughs> there is no life I know to compare with your imagination. Living there, you'll be free if you try.